Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 18. We are back in the book of Acts again, and we're going to move forward in the history of the early church. Um, just about a chapter or so today, and um, then next week, for the next couple of weeks, we'll go to First uh, and Second Corinthians, which were written at about this time, about, about the middle of the uh, chapter that we're, we're looking at today. So let's take a look at Acts 18, and we're going to begin at verse 23. How many, by the way, if you look at your Bibles, how many have a heading at the beginning of verse 23? Okay, only a couple of Bibles actually show that. Interesting. Um, the, uh, the chapter breaks, the paragraph breaks, are not inspired, as we've said before. And if you were to read through this passage, you may not catch it, but in verse 23, we have the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. So in our study, just to give you kind of a historical perspective, we are at uh, A.D. 53. It's about six years since Paul went out on his first missionary journey. And his uh, second trip began about three years later and lasted for about three years. He came back to Antioch, and that was his pattern, to go out into the field and then go back to the assembly where he was commended, uh, from, from which he was commended. And in uh, chapter 18, verse 22, we read this. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So that is the conclusion of um, his second missionary journey. Then in verse 23, it says, And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he may have been in Ephesus, I'm sorry, in um, uh, Antioch for a few days, a few weeks, but not likely um, a year. He wasn't there for very long. And I have no doubt that as Paul uh, finished his second missionary journey, his heart yearned to be back with those that he had won to the Lord. He had gone out, as you know, he had had many difficulties, many trials in the first and the second missionary journey, and yet all of that to him seemed totally like a light weight, he says, in, uh, in later books. He said that, that the, the uh, trials that he faced were, were just like a feather. They're just lightweight compared to the exceeding glory of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the things that he suffered, all the things that he went through, all the difficulties along the path were like nothing to him. But he had a longing, he had a yearning and a passion for the saints. And that comes out very clearly in his writings, in, the, uh, in his letters to the, to the churches. His love for them, his desire to see them, his compassion for them, his longing to be with them face to face. Because after he left, in many cases, false teachers came in and began to disrupt the saints, and it burdened his heart. And he, he wrote to several letters saying, what's going on in Galatians? We read this. Who has bewitched you? What is going on in Galatia that you have turned from the gospel of grace and have gone back under, under the law? And so he would just as soon have been there talking to them face to face. And that's why I think that he barely stayed any time at all in Antioch and went right back out into the field 
to to minister to the saints now verse 23 marks the beginning of the trip timothy luke and others uh, accompany paul on this trip and the and the trip itself is about three to four years in length it's a trip that that measures about 2700 miles most of it on foot or or by boats that most of us wouldn't want to be on the main purpose of the trip of course seems to be to strengthen the believers but he has some evangelistic uh, opportunities here as well now as we look at this passage i want you to think again of the 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 uh, verses that we have taken up as kind of key verses for this passage the lord jesus christ said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and we often think when it comes to the missionary journeys of paul that he was the only one involved in the work of building the church and uh because of course the focus is on him and the focus is on the work that god gave him to do but this passage kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and shows us that there were more involved uh, in the work than just Paul. And there were some very key people that uh, were part of the makeup of the church at this time. So let's go on this journey with him. And um, let's begin, begin here in verse 23. So we, we, we read that already. And I'm just going to stop there for a minute. It says uh, that he went to the, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia. These are areas, these are names that we don't say often, and so they're kind of unfamiliar to our vocabulary. But if I said to you, the church at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, those are church names that we've heard of before. And that's, those are the churches that are, are from this area of Galatia and Phrygia. And so he's going back to the churches that uh, he had planted uh, just a few years earlier. Now, when he went into that area originally, he saw a few people come to know the Lord. And then it tells us that the church grew. And then on his second missionary journey, we read this about these churches. It says in chapter 16, verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Marvelous that the church was growing daily. And so who was involved? Because Paul wasn't there. But the saints that he had left, God had already begun to mature, and they had a zeal and a passion to go out and reach their own neighbors, their own friends, their own family members, and the church was growing daily. Now Paul returns to strengthen them some more. Okay, let's take a look at verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos, 
a little story, a little vignette here of another man that God raised up and used mightily in the work of the Lord. Apollos was a Jew. He was from the city of Alexandria. For some of you um, who don't know, Alexandria was a major uh, port city at the north of Africa. It was one of the leading cities of learning uh, at this time, and it was a, a city that was named after, guess who? Alexander the Great. Good for you. Okay? So here is a city that uh, had massive libraries. In fact, libraries that would, would, um, would, would be uh, comparable, I think, to many of the libraries that we have today. Um, it was known for its learning, and those who were taught in Alexandria were kind of the elite. You know, it would be almost like saying that they were from some very recognized university town today. And so I believe that um, uh, Apollos had been raised here, had been schooled in the finest universities of the time in Alexandria, probably trained by the best teachers, and he was trained in public speaking, no doubt about that. And this schooling that he had, um, in fact, if doctorates were handed out at the time, no doubt he had earned his degree. He is described here as an eloquent man. That means that he was articulate, persuasive, and powerful in speech. You know, I'll tell you something. It's easy to listen to an eloquent speaker. I'm sorry that I make it so difficult <laughs> for you to listen to me. <laughs> but he was an eloquent speaker. It says he was mighty in the scriptures. This, of course, refers to the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament had not been written yet. And uh, it seems that Apollos, uh, in spite of the fact that he was trained in the best worldly school, had not been corrupted by the school process. And, uh, in fact, it seems that he just expanded his skills in oratory, debate, and teaching for the sole purpose of teaching and preaching the Old Testament scriptures. Here was a man with his head on straight. There aren't many who go to uh, public universities or private universities and come away with as much uh, character as this man did. And so he was a man who used, in a sense, the world's system without becoming worldly himself. Great. And as he studied the Old Testament scriptures, it's interesting how the word of God uh, says it here. It says, he taught accurately the things of the Lord. I love that. Because there was an awful lot going on in Jerusalem, in Israel at that time, that was not the accurate teaching of the word of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, had, had brought this to the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, during his time on the earth. That they were blind, leaders of the blind. They read the scriptures, but they didn't know the scriptures. They read the scriptures, but they didn't understand the scriptures. And they were leading people down the wrong path. But here's a man that studied the scriptures, and he understood the scriptures as far as he could and taught them accurately. And so I think it goes without saying that as he read the Old Testament prophecies, he believed that God was going to send the Messiah. And as he read the Psalms and Isaiah, he believed that that Messiah would suffer, 
because it teaches that in the scripture. So whatever he, underst- whatever he read and taught, he understood accurately to a point. And we're going to read about that in just a second. Mighty in the scriptures. So it says here in this passage, um, in verse, whoops, hang on a second. In verse 25, he spoke, he, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, comma, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had come in his understanding right up to the point of John's baptism. Let me ask you something. Is John's baptism salvation? Okay. Were the people who were baptized by John saved eternally? No. John's teaching and John's message was to the Israelites to repent and to turn to God. His message was to separate themselves from the religious culture that they were in and to turn their hearts back to God. And that's what apparently Apollos did. And he was so enthusiastic, I'm sure, about the message of, of John that he went around preaching it himself. That's how far he had come in his understanding of the truth. And so he began to preach wherever he could this message that, that Israel uh, was to expect the Messiah to come. And he was coming soon because John had said so. I, I have come, and, um, but there's one coming after me, he taught. And the one that is coming after me is greater than I am. I am not worthy to loose the sandals on his feet. This one who is coming is he. He is the Messiah. And, and Apollos understood that. And so I'm sure that he was baptized uh, in John's baptism and went out preaching this message to repent and turn back to God because the Messiah is in fact coming. That's as far as he went. This was his Achilles heel, if you will. So anyway, he came as he went up to, um, through uh, the provinces of Galatia, Phrygia. He came to Asia, which is uh, to a city of Ephesus. And as he came to Ephesus, he went into the synagogue and he began to preach this message again. And as he preached this message, there were two people in the congregation that heard him speak that day. And they were, anybody know? Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, husband and wife. You know, it's interesting. There are not many gifted public speakers, but from time to time, God raises up um, some who are eloquent and bold and effective in preaching. From time to time, they arrive on the scene and they are greatly used of the Lord. I think of um, C.H. Spurgeon as one of them. He's called the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he died, what, well over 100 years ago. And yet his messages are still greatly in demand even to this day. Apollos was such a preacher. And it says that he taught accurately the word of God here. So as he's preaching in the synagogue, the weakness of his message is not understood until he gets right to the point of preaching about the Messiah, of preaching about repentance and turning to the Lord and separating themselves from the, the religious culture that they were in and turning back to God. And he stops that's all he knew he couldn't go any further and so we have one of the greatest orators of this time teaching about the messiah and as um, aquila and priscilla listened to the message they knew that he was zealous they knew that it was a message of repentance but he had not heard the rest of the story and so this great orator sits down 
And after the meeting is all over, they come up to him and say, how would you like to come over for dinner this afternoon? <laughs> we'd like to feed you and we'd like to talk to you a little bit more about what you've said. And very graciously, he accepts the invitation and he goes over to their house. I'm reading into it. And he listens to them over lunch. And it's so interesting to me to see who the Lord uses here. Here you have, in a sense, from a worldly standpoint, probably one of the greatest debaters, one of the greatest orators in, in uh, that time period. And he comes to the house of two people who make tents. That's what they do. They're just, they're just day laborers. Okay? They spend their time working uh, on tents so that they have enough to live on. And then they go out and they preach the gospel. And so they're only part-time day laborers. And they come, he comes over and he listens to them. You know, it really tells me something about the character of this man that he would listen in such a humble way to these, these two. Now, a- as he uh, sat there, I want to stop for a second and go back in history for just a minute. And I want to I show you something that took place as the Lord is building his church and how he uses individuals along the way to do things that at the time they may not understand why he's doing them, but it all comes clear in the end. So I'm going to go back about uh, two or three years in history, maybe about a year before Apollos arrived in Ephesus. God had allowed a ruler in Rome named Claudius to get all in a hissy fit over the Jews. And he wanted them out of Rome. He wanted them out of Italy altogether. Just get out. And he basically banned them from, um, from Rome. Two of the Jews who were in Rome at the time were named Aquila and Priscilla, the husband and wife team we talked about. And they moved from Rome to the port city of Corinth. And they came there at about the time that the Apostle Paul arrived. And as the Apostle Paul arrived, he happened to be a tent maker too. And he happened to believe that it would be good for him not to be supported by the churches and just take the funds from the churches, but rather to work with his hands to show by example that uh, hard work is good and it's, and, and it's proper for believers. And so he went out looking for someone in the same trade. And he came across, maybe it was Aquila and Priscilla's tent making house or something like that, but wherever it was, He went to their house, and they received Paul into their home. And he stayed with them. And he made tents there. And they worked together. And I have no doubt that it was probably at this time that while they were sewing tents together, Paul preached the gospel to them. And they heard the gospel, and they understood the gospel, and they were saved. And they were baptized. And they were part of the church and can you imagine having a one-on-one discipleship or a one-on-two discipleship with the Apostle Paul? Wow, that's pretty good. And so they were schooled under the Apostle Paul, discipled by him. Marvelous. And so they had a very clear understanding of the gospel, a very clear understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith. And so they stayed and they worked with Paul there in Corinth for a time. Now, as, as it turned out, Paul decided that it was time for him to leave the area, and he invited this couple to travel with him, and they did. Paul finally arrived in Ephesus in his second missionary journey, and he went into the 
synagogue and he taught in the synagogue very brief period of time and the jews of that synagogue wanted him to stay and they begged him to stay and he said no i've got to go on to jerusalem and and i'm, I'm out of here but i'm going to leave aquila and priscilla here in my place it's great and so they stayed and i have no doubt that they taught those who would hear and listen and um and they stayed in ephesus well i just love how the lord works things out don't you so Paul is back in Antioch, and he's away from what's happening in Ephesus. And Apollos arrives in Ephesus and begins to teach in the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla are there. They hear that, that morning this learned and eloquent scholar, and their hearts are, are warmed by the accuracy of his teaching up to the point. And, and Apollos is clear about the fact that the Messiah is coming, and that he's coming soon, and that he will suffer, and, and all the rest of it. And then he stops. And so as, as they brought him over for dinner that day, they began to explain to him, you know, Apollos, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Messiah has already come. Really? When did he come? Because I've been so busy out preaching about John's repentance that I didn't hear that. What are you talking about? The Messiah has come. And as he began to talk, he be they began to teach him and showed him more accurately the way of the Lord, he understood the gospel, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He had come, he had suffered, he had bled, and he had died for their sins, and that he rose again the third day, and he was ascended and risen, and at the right hand of, of the majesty on high, and that they were out preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, wow, where have I been? Now, I, I didn't see that in the scripture, but I can imagine that's what he said, or something like that. And I believe that that is where Apollos was saved. Because up to the point he knew, he didn't understand the gospel. He hadn't heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that at that time, he came to know the Lord. Well, nothing could hold him back now. <laughs> I mean, he had been preaching the message of, of uh, the Messiah's coming. And now he had already come and he was here. And I'm sure as they open up the scriptures in the Old Testament to him, he, could, he, he was just flooded with joy as he saw that these scriptures had been fulfilled he was just simply telling them that they're going to be fulfilled now he knows that they have been fulfilled in the person of the lord jesus christ and so he says listen i got to get out of here i got to go back to corinth i've got to go and preach the gospel over there too would you let me go and the brethren of the assembly there said yes we'll let you go and he went to um corinth and there he began to teach um in the assembly there and it says in chapter 18, verse 28, um, he, landed, he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Wow. Well, we learned something here as well about the character of Apollos, that even though he was so well-schooled and was such an effective orator, he had the humility to be instructed by a lowly tent maker in his wife when it came to the things of god let me say this to you believers don't be intimidated by people of learning don't be intimidated a believer who knows the lord and knows how to be saved knows more than all of the unsaved um educated doctors out there um you know more 
of the important things of life. It doesn't mean that you have a better education. It doesn't mean that you're better in science or better in math or better in computers or better. You're not, we're not here for that purpose. You may have a job where you are, are, your, your education and your skills are needed in those areas, but that's not the purpose for which we are here. We're here to preach the gospel. And a believer, a simple believer who understands the gospel knows more than the most intelligent people on earth who only know their field and don't know Jesus Christ. And how much better it is to know Jesus than it is to know some other field of learning. It's not to put down fields of learning. Obviously, God has put some wonderful and intricate things in creation that we should learn and we should know. But the greatest thing we can know is the, the greatest thing we can know is the Lord Jesus Christ personally as our Savior and our Lord. So, he's little tent maker and his wife. Reach the high and the mighty. <laughs> it's great. You know, the Lord says actually in the scripture that there aren't many mighty, there aren't many wise who come to know the Lord. It's a shame, isn't it? With all the intelligence and strength and, and uh, things that the Lord gives to people, that there aren't more who come that way. But the, the humble or the, the, the meek do hear him and hear him gladly. Little did Aquila and Priscilla know that when they were kicked out of Rome and uprooted from their home, that the Lord had a plan for their lives. They didn't know it at the time. And you know, we have circumstances in our lives. The Lord brings us through difficulties or trials, uh, sicknesses sometimes, uh, family issues and all the rest of it. And we say, Sometimes we think to ourselves, Lord, why? Why has this happened to me? Why has it happened to me now? And we just see so limited in our vision. We are so limited in our vision. We often look at, at, at the things of life with our hands cupped over our eyes and we just see a very narrow field of vision. And the Lord has so, something so much greater, so much bigger for us that he's doing. And that was true here with Aquila and Priscilla. They didn't know that upon meeting Paul in Corinth, they would come to know the Lord, and then the Lord would uproot them again and put them in Ephesus, and that the Lord would bring Apollos there, and that they would have an impact in his life, and that Apollos would have an impact in Corinth, and he would have an impact in the churches around the area. They had no idea that the Lord was going to use them for something so significant, but he did. How easy it is to think that the Lord has lost control when something happens in our life that we weren't expecting. We get sideswiped or T-boned in, in a way that we weren't expecting. The Lord hasn't lost control. The Lord's very much in control and will use everything, every bump in the road of life for his glory. If we are uh, open to him and remain sensitive to the Lord and his calling, we can be greatly used. Who has the Lord put in your life right now that might be the next great evangelist that he raises up who has the lord put in your life right now that might be the next great orator uh, in the christian church who has the lord put in your life right now that might be greatly used by the lord through something simple that you say to them you don't think it could happen it happened with aquila and priscilla i believe the lord can use every one of us here to have that kind of an impact if we're sensitive to the lord's leading in our lives. 
Ask the Lord. Pray that the Lord will give you eyes to see what he wants to do in you and through you. Well, let's go on to chapter 19 and uh, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Let's just pause there for a moment. Now, Apollos has already left the region. He's now in Corinth. And so Paul comes to Ephesus and he bumps into this group of 12 disciples of John. These men were like Apollos in their understanding of the word. And they may have been actually taught by Apollos up to that point. And they believed everything up to that point, right up to the point of John's baptism. But they were not saved. And the evidence of that is that they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. Now, it is true today that there are many people who have a lot of information about the Lord. They've heard about the Lord. They've studied about the Lord. They've been taught about the Lord. Maybe maybe we've even shared the gospel with them. And people have an understanding to a point. Some people spend months or even years studying the Bible. Maybe they have relatives who are saved. But they themselves have never been born again. Let me ask you this morning. I'm not going to ask you if you're religious. I'm not going to ask you if you've studied the Bible. I'm not going to ask you if you have an understanding of the Word of God. The question that is all important, have you been saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's the question. That's the all-important question. Do you know Him? And so Paul was asking a very similar question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If you know Jesus Christ and you've trusted in him as your Lord and your Savior, you have received the Holy Spirit. No question about it. And so if you haven't been saved, you can be saved today. You can know him and have uh, him as your Savior. Well, they believed everything. They've been taught. They uh, were baptized in the baptism of repentance. And then they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Let me clarify what this means. It's not that they did not, had never heard of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is clearly taught in the Old Testament. John the Baptist taught clearly about the Holy Spirit. That's not what they were saying, that they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. What they're saying here is that they had not heard that the Holy Spirit had come. That's what John had told them that was going to happen, that he was going to come, and they had not heard that he had already come and indwelt believers they were ignorant of that so paul reminded them that john taught that the people should believe on him who would come after john that is on jesus christ and they immediately believed and they were baptized in water in the name of jesus christ and then paul laid hands on them they received the holy spirit and evidence of that was the speaking of tongues and prophecy let me say this to you too just kind of as an aside Some of you may have been raised in a church that baptized infants or baptized family groups. And uh, 
the, the reason that the church did that, most likely, is because they wanted you to, to go through a procedure that would make you right with God. But baptism doesn't make you right with God. The only thing that can make you right with God is the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross for your sins. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are right with God. Your baptism comes after salvation. Christian baptism is really a demonstration publicly of what has already taken place in a person's life uh, personally with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an outward uh, testimony, if you will, that Jesus Christ died for me, was buried, and rose again the third day. So I want to ask you, if you've never been baptized as a believer, you were baptized as a young person or as a child or as an infant, and you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and as your Lord, but you've never been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you to come forward and be baptized uh, as a believer as well. So this event marked the last group of people who needed to be saved. The gospel has gone out to the Jews. The gospel has gone out to the Samaritans. The gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And now this little group of John's disciples have also come in and uh, into the church and are, are saved as well. The order in which they received the gospel, were baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and so on, are all different. And there's good reason for it. We're not going to get into it today. But the end result is the same. They all came. They were all brought into the family of God. Now the transition period is over, and the gospel goes out um, to all men and women, and they're saved on the same basis today, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul stayed in um, Ephesus, and he taught in the synagogue for about three months, preaching the uh, kingdom of God. While he was there, ultimately the Jews hardened their hearts, and they turned from uh, Paul in a sense. They didn't want to hear anymore. We, we've heard enough. No more. And so Paul left. But he didn't leave the area. He believed that God had him there for a reason, and he went to a place called the School of Tyrannus. And this was a place where... Teachers apparently could go, and they could teach whoever would come and listen. And so Paul went there, and for two years, uh, he taught the Scriptures to all who would come and all who would listen. People got saved, and from this Bible school, if you will, men were sent out from there to all the different areas of Asia and preached the gospel, and many people came to know the Lord. In fact, in the two-year period, it says in chapter 19, verse 10, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, uh, both Jews and Greeks. I don't know if you remember, <clears throat> do we have uh, AC going on? Because everybody's hot here, including me. <laughs> I can tell by the fans. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So, Paul remained in Ephesus uh, teaching for, for the two more years. Actually, in chapter 20, we read that Paul stayed in Ephesus for, a, for an overall period of about three years. Two years in this school, several months in the uh, synagogue, and then some more time besides. Do you remember in the second missionary journey how Paul wanted to go into Asia and preach the gospel? 
And the Holy Spirit forbid him. And he said, okay, well, then I'm going to go to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit forbid him going into Bithynia. And as he waited on the Lord, he had the Macedonian call to go over to the peninsula and, and to preach the gospel all the way down to Corinth. God's timing is impeccable. It really is. Now he's in Asia. This is Asia Minor, actually. The, the, uh, it's a, it's a, an area um, that is called Asia here, proconsular Asia. It wasn't the time in the second missionary journey to come here, but it was now. And the Lord was going to do something amazing here. Um, and the Lord wanted to wait until the time was right. And I'll tell you something. If we are patient and if we are sensitive to the Lord's leading, the Lord will guide us uh, in ways that are not our ways, but they're much better than our ways. So often we become, I know I do, I become impatient with the Lord. Lord, I want to do this and I want to do it now. And can't you see the people that are perishing? Can't you see that we need to do this and do that and do the other thing? The Lord says, look, I've got it all under control. I haven't stepped off the throne. I'm still God. God's, God's timing is impeccable. It's perfect. And though we don't often see it, we need to trust him in it, that his timing is absolutely right. And so Paul came to this area, and the Lord is about to do something beyond even his imagination. So people are added to the church, and God gives them a mission. And those people that were saved during Paul's time here in Ephesus preach the gospel. All Asia hears the gospel. And uh, I don't think Paul could have reached the community as effectively had he gone in years earlier. But in the right time, God used Paul and all those who got saved to reach the entire community of um, Asia. You know, we need to pray. The Lord has brought us here in his own time. Just think of the history of Calvary for a minute. Sometimes we prayed over and over again that the Lord would, Lord, give us something that is, you know, a church building we can call our own. Put us in an area where we can reach out to the community. And the Lord seemed to keep us at bay from different things. We even, a, a year or two years ago almost now, uh, we almost got a church building in San Leandro. And uh, the Lord said no. And I know that some of us were disappointed. said, well, Lord, why? Why not now? Why not here? It's right in Daryl's backyard, you know? <laughs> why can't we be here? But we trusted the Lord even so and said, Lord, your will be done. And I think we even said that at the time that we were negotiating the, the offer. We said something like this, that if it's the Lord's will for us to have it, nothing will stop it. And if it's not the Lord's will for us to have it, we don't want it. And the Lord had another plan. He had another purpose, and he brought us here. If he brought us here, he brought us here for a reason. And there's a community right here at our doorstep that needs to be reached for the gospel. And I believe that the Lord wants to reach the people of Fremont and Union City and Newark. Why not then? I don't know. I don't have an answer. Apart from this, it wasn't the Lord's will. And that's good enough for me. Pray that the Lord will use you and the Lord will use me to reach this community and that we will have an impact on all who live in this community around us. All who dwell 
in the houses in our neighborhood, all who dwell in the houses in the cities that surround us, all who dwell in Alameda County. Ask the Lord that he might raise up laborers right in this field to do the work of the gospel. By the way, I noticed when I came back here today that we hadn't reached the entire area. We did great today, by the way, and I praise the Lord for what happened today in getting out into the community. I realize there's still a lot of packages out here that uh, if you'd like, I'm sure Michael could put you in touch with the neighborhoods that still need to be reached. Maybe if you have time this afternoon, maybe if you have time Monday, uh, we could put you to uh, another task here in this community. You know, the interesting thing is here that um, an, an unusual story unfolds in verses 11 through 20. It says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Wow. That was kind of neat, wasn't it? Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. (laughs) It's kind of distant, isn't it? Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I love that. Magnified. What a relief this would be today if so many sick people, so many dying of diseases and illness, see the effect of demons departing from people that have been possessed because of spiritism or drug use or alcohol addictions and cultic practices. But the passage says these were unusual miracles. God was working in a supernatural way at this time and in this place. Now, the Lord can work miracles today. That I have no doubt about. You can, re- you can uh, read of some of his unusual workings at times of revival in history, where God, in a supernatural way, moves in a, in a, a way that was unprecedented before. And how we might pray that the Lord would bring about revival once again. And that we would see people delivered in our day and age from drugs and alcohol and sexual sins and all the rest. That we might pray this way for our own neighborhood here in Fremont. As I look, as I mentioned on Tuesday night, as I went out uh, with Michael and Krista on Monday last week, and we went in one neighborhood, and every single house was a different religion. Every single house was either a different religion or a different cult from Buddhism to Hinduism to Nazism uh, to, to everything. All side by side, every house was different. And I think of the people who are blind and lost and in darkness in our own community here. And God can deliver them. God can deliver them. How we might pray that way for our own neighborhood here. Now, the point of the miracles had nothing to do with making Paul look great. I want you to know that. Um, They were designed by God to make his son look great. And they did. It ultimately had that effect. His name was magnified. 
These itinerant Jewish exorcists saw what was going on and they wanted a piece of the action. Wow, that's power. That's real power to see something happen like that. But what we've been doing is we've just been playing in the fringes. I want to tap into this power. And so I'm hearing them say that it's Paul, but they're doing it in the name of Jesus. So why don't we say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. But they had no authority to do that. And God had not given them the authority to do that. And the demons recognize authority. Do you know, do you know that? They recognize the authority of Jesus Christ to cast demons out. And they recognize the authority that Paul had from God to cast demons out. But there was no authority that these people had to do this. And they leapt or leaped on him or on them and overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There is real power in, in demonic activity. And it's not something to be trifled with. News of this qu- quickly spread to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Take note of what it says here in this passage. It says, fear fell upon them. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And when people see something that is supernatural like this happening and they recognize the hand of God in it, they fear. I was reading the story of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, how many times in his life, it's abs- I, I didn't even know this, I didn't realize how many times God brought him to near death himself and how many times he feared God for a moment and then backed away and feared God for another moment and then backed away. It's amazing. No wonder he wrote the song Amazing Grace that God continued after him over and over and over again to bring him to himself. Fear fell on them, the beginning of wisdom. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It was made great. His reputation and his honor became great in that area. And the people of Ephesus realized that Jesus Christ had the power to save them. These people were um, slaves to demons. They were slaves to idolatry. And they recognized that Jesus Christ had power over demons, had power over sickness, had power over everything in their life that they feared. And they were living in fear. I have no doubt about that. And, and they recognized that Paul was truly a messenger of the Lord Jesus. And the results were immediate and astounding. It says, And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What a thrilling account of true confession, true repentance, true salvation. The passage is an account of a wonderful conversion that took place. First, when the Lord Jesus Christ's name was honored and magnified, people believed on him. That's what it says. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they came as repentant sinners, confessing their sins um, uh, publicly. And they were not ashamed to take a stand publicly against themselves. And they were saying things like, I am an alcoholic. I am an immoral man. I am a thief. I am this, I am that. That's what it means to confess. It's to come clean. It's to, to come out with it what you really are. I am filled with pride. Whatever the sin is, confess it before God and come clean. 
The Bible says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought and the Lord will have mercy on him and to their God for he will abundantly pardon. God can take the vilest sinner, the worst sinner and make him whole and make him clean and make him saved. God is merciful. Paul had written to the Corinthians something similar. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. How did he know that? Because they had come clean. They came clean and said, look, I'm, a, I'm an idolater. I'm a drunkard. I'm, I'm a reviler. I'm an extortioner. And they came clean. And they said, but I need to be saved. I need my sins forgiven. Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you confessed your sin to Him and said, this is what I am. I'm a sinner in need of your salvation. Come and cleanse me and make me whole. You know, I love this passage in Corinthians. It says, and such were some of you. But he goes on to say, you are washed. You are sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what happened to these sinners? Marvelous things. It's great. I love it when the Lord gets a hold of a sinner's life and he changes them from the inside out. And he takes someone who is a thief and he makes them a philanthropist. Have you seen that before? The Lord takes a thief and he makes him one of the most generous people you know, giving, giving, giving. In fact, Paul says that's what thieves who are former thieves should do. You know, you were formerly thieves. Now give, give. A drunkard who washes his booze down the drain and then teaches sobriety. (laughs) Only the Lord can do that. An immoral woman before salvation spent her life um, after salvation teaching purity and rescuing women from abortion clinics. Amazing. It's a case of a woman like that. A murderer who becomes a preacher. There's a guy in prison that mom and dad knew for years and he was in for multiple murders. He was a massive guy, about six foot eight and 300 pounds, nicknamed Tiny. <laughs> and the Lord gloriously saved him. And he began to preach in the prison, unashamed, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'll tell you, you don't, you have some tough guys in prison, and he was the toughest of them all. And to see him change, from the inside out because of knowing the Lord. And people listened and people got saved. And the Lord released him from prison, a multiple murderer, unheard of. And he went out and he preached the gospel for the rest of his life. That's the kind of effect that the gospel has in the lives of people, sinners whom Jesus saves. It's great. It's absolutely great. Such was the case here in Acts. Acts chapter 19, verse 19, I think is one of the classic verses in all of Acts. It says, Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them that totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. You know, I'll tell you, you go out and preach the gospel, and you have this kind of a result. <laughs> wow. That, that is so encouraging. That is so encouraging to see. 
the Lord doing something like this. He saved these people. And their response to Jesus Christ as Lord told them to basically turn aside from their former way of life and to put it behind them once and for all. A change that takes place here is marvelous. These people were idolaters. They practiced magic. The occult practices were studied from the books that they possessed. And when they got saved, they saw the glaring inconsistency of continuing to practice magic. And so they gathered their libraries of magic books out to the uh, public square, and they they had a great big uh, computer out there, and they put all the titles online, and they sold them on eBay so that they could make some money for the church. That's not what happened. Well, they just kept them in their library because, you know, if they ever, if, if Jesus didn't work out, they could always go back to magic. And they didn't do that either. Instead, they went to the public square and they piled them up in a great big pile for everybody to see. You see, their sin was public. Their sin had been public. And now their repentance was going to be public too. And as they piled these books together, they, they, they torched them. And they burned up this pile of books that was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, there's no way for us to know exactly how much money that is in today's terms. But I'll tell you what, 50,000 pieces of silver has got to be an awful lot of money. Nothing would keep them from destroying the things that kept them from the Lord in the first place. And they wanted to destroy it all. They didn't want these books falling into the hands of other people and corrupting them and turning them from Jesus. And so they burned them all. How about you? Is there anything that you possess, anything that you own, anything that reminds you of your past sinful life that you haven't gotten rid of? You know, I'll tell you something. When I was a very young believer, somebody pointed out this verse to me, and it really, really struck me hard. And I said, you know, there are things that I have that only remind me of sin. In and of themselves, they're... they're, they're neutral but to me they remind me of sin whether they be clothes or possessions or trinkets or things like that that only remind me of my past sin and i said lord i'm gonna i'm gonna do a house cleaning here like i've never done before and i went through everything i had books that i had presents that i had clothes that i had everything i had and i said lord I, we couldn't have a bonfire in the street they wouldn't allow they wouldn't give me a permit for it so i had to destroy it and the only way i could was to put it in the garbage but before i put it in the garbage i made them useless and i remember one of my, my youngest sister coming out one day that i was doing some of this and and i was sitting there with hammers and destroying things she's what are you doing and as i was going to one thing she wanted she says i'll take that and i said no you won't and i, cr- I crunched it and threw it in the garbage and but you know I wanted there to be no trace of my past, no trace of sin from my former way of life and ask the Lord to just remove it all. And it's the best thing you can do. Today, would that Christians today would have the same passion for the things of God and would destroy trashy magazines, trashy books, DVDs, videos, CDs, clothing, things that even remotely remind you of your sinful past. Just get rid of it. Get it off the shelves. Get it out of your home. Destroy it. 
that, and put a line in the sand that you will never cross over that again for the glory of God. As a young believer, I think it's a very important thing to do. And so as a result of this, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Well, our time is up. We didn't get through as far as we'd like to get, but it's um, more to come in the, uh, in, in the work there in Ephesus. We're going to break uh, next couple of weeks for um, the study in, in 1 Corinthians. And it's right at this time that Paul writes the first letter to the uh, Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8 and 9, it says this. He's writing to the Corinthians and says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so as he comes to this point in time when the Ephesians have come together and they've had this bonfire and they've really been converted, they've truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as Savior, but they want to honor Him as Lord of their life, controlling every aspect of their life. Paul says, wow, a door has just opened wide. I've got to stay. And so he does, and there's some more interesting things that happen in the, in the city of Ephesus to come. We're going to uh, pass on the final hymn and just uh, close in prayer here. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the impact that it has had in our lives. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be not only our Savior, but in every very real sense, Lord, of every aspect of our life. Lord, from the things that we hear the things that we see, the things that we do, the things that we occupy our time with. Lord, we want you to have sway and control over all of these areas of our life. Lord, if there are some here who don't know you as yet, we pray that they too would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We ask in your name. Amen.